Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. From WDEV in Waterbury, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint, the public affairs show where we try to explain Vermont and the nation and understand our politics, culture, and democracy. I'm Kevin Ellis in the chair live at the studios of DEV, and welcome to everyone listening on the radio and online at the DEV radio app. That's a lot. It's Friday, July 28th, and there's a lot going on out there, as always. Today we're going to focus, as we have been, on flood damage and cleanup throughout the state. We'll be joined in the first, our first segment by Representative Laura Sibilia of Dover and other towns to discuss what happened in southern Vermont, and we'll ask her how she thinks about the future. Uh, she's the vice chair of the House Environment Committee, and so she has a lot of thoughts on this, and this is not her first rodeo when it comes to flooding. Then we speak to the leader of the National the National Organic Farmers Association, Vermont chapter, about farm and crop damage and how she thinks about the future for our uh, farmers in Vermont. We'll head to D.C. and speak with Bob Ney about, for our weekly chat about all things D.C., we'll talk about new charges against Donald Trump and that incredibly uncomfortable video clip we saw of House uh, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell having a what uh what experts on TV are calling a stroke in mid sentence uh in in a impromptu press conference. We'll talk to 7 Days reporter Kevin McCallum about what the rains did to our uh dams and how close we came in Montpelier to an out and out full catastrophe. Uh and then a treat Vermont Viewpoint film and TV critic Keenan Ellis will join us to talk about Barbie, Oppenheimer, Mission Impossible, and Harrison Ford, uh, and what you should go see first and why, uh, and the state of movies. Uh, we'll do that at 1030. As always, we'll take your calls and emails to hear your stories about flooding and answer any questions you might have. We are now in week three of flood recovery. There is a long, long way to go. But I do see, at least in downtown Montpelier and, and Barry, I was in Barry a lot yesterday, um, hammers and nails are starting to replace, uh, dehumidifiers and, uh, and, and garbage on the streets, uh, ever so slightly. A lot to get to today. But first, On Wednesday, Bernie Sanders and the rest of the congressional delegation, along with Governor Scott, conducted a town hall where more than 200 people signed up to ask questions on the phone about flood relief. One question I have, does FEMA help small businesses hurt by the flood? A FEMA rep came on this show uh, last week and said, no, they don't, that FEMA only helps individuals, households, renters and homeowners, and reimburses local governments and state governments for their expenses. And yet, I continue to still hear that FEMA people are out there going door-to-door in downtowns uh, offering help to small businesses. Um, and I get this from small businesses every day that are asking me, they're coming to this realization that they're not going to get any FEMA help. For some reason, small businesses are still under the impression uh, that that they're going to get help from FEMA. And 
uh, uh, Dave Mace from FEMA was on this show last week and he said, that's a, that's a hard no, that a small business can apply for low interest loans to the small business administration. And that's where that money comes from. So I, I hope that clears it up. Um, but, uh, if you have questions, uh, we will, we'll get more detailed answers for you. The legislature held a day-long hearing yesterday on flood relief, a long list of, of witnesses. Uh, nothing, nothing comes out of it, but at least there's a conversation. And Secretary of State Sarah Copeland Hansis, a sometime guest on this show, fired a political broadside at the governor over the flooding, urging him to do more. In a commentary piece for Vermont Media, with an attached email, she says she met with the governor and asked him to turn all state government's attention to making Vermont more climate and economically resilient. Uh, and she said he refused. I have not heard anything from the governor's side on this, but this is an interesting, um, you know, as, as, as we get further and further away from the flood, politics eventually is going to uh, is going to weigh in here and people are going to start criticizing and making suggestions. Uh, and I've raised this question on the show. Can our political system, uh, make the necessary changes it needs to, to deal with what is coming with these floods? Uh, I think it's an open question. Um, on Wednesday, we heard from Montpelier architect Greg Gossens in our attempt to build a list of what measures should be taken immediately to manage this flooding in the future. His answer is first, let the river go where it will go. Stop fighting it. Fill in the downtown basements with sand and concrete. Move the mechanicals upstairs above the high water mark. Continue to build downtown, especially housing, but just ensure that the new construction comes with energy and flood mitigation measures like building them up higher. Buildings like the Hunger Mountain Food Co-op, the Transit Center, and others built recently did not flood. They were on high enough ground. And understand that this is a societal human problem caused by humans uh, building close to the rivers and should not fall on the shoulders of just Montpelier or just Barry or just Dover or just Ludlow. This to-do list is going to grow, and I would add, uh, I know the governor's talking about buyouts of homes and other buildings built in floodplains. Um, I, you know, I, I, I raised this the other day. Do we need a special Blue Ribbon Commission to investigate what happened and make recommendations to the governor and the legislature about how to redesign the way we live in a way that's good for all of us environmentally and economically? If we're going to rise up out of this, it will be on the shoulders of people like Sarah DeFelice, the owner of Bailey Road, the home goods shop in Montpelier, who days after the flood held a sale of slightly damaged goods. The place was packed. And last uh, two nights ago, she held a bundle sale on Instagram selling bundles of goods intended for summer shoppers and no good for the fall. 75 people on that live show, and now she's told me this week she's opening a new warehouse and retail outlet in downtown Northfield, her hometown. As she told me that, contractors were busy putting down new flooring in her store and sheetrock on her walls. The sound of hammers and skill saws is starting to drown out the hum of generators and sump pumps. It's not everything, but it's something. 
We'll be right back with Representative Laura Sibilia. Uh, we're going to talk more about this after this break. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint. Laura Sibilia is a member of the Vermont House and of Representatives and represents the town of Dover, Wardsboro, Jamaica, and Lord knows probably many others. She's the vice chair of the House Environment and Energy Committee, and she has seen all of this before in 2011 with Hurricane Irene, and she is breaking out of a meeting to join us for just a few minutes. Welcome to the show. Hey, good morning, Kevin. How are you? I'm, I'm fine. I'm dry. Um, where were you when this overtook your communities? Yeah, the current um, the current flooding. You know, we uh, we came into work uh, a little concerned. Uh, I live in Dover. I work in Brattleboro. Uh, my boss lives in Wilmington. Works in Brattleboro. We come different ways to work, and uh, we both, you know, were definitely had uh, Irene on the brain. And uh, there was a point in time when we got to work and said, "Oh, well, we probably should leave to make sure that we can get home." Because uh, we know what happens uh, here, and uh, uh, in in our in the Deerfield Valley, uh, it largely uh, the 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 rain went right to the point where we all went, oh my gosh, it's going to happen again, right? And then it stopped. Uh, and just north of the Deerfield Valley, um, the West River Valley. Um, the upper West River Valley, uh, that's not the case. It went all the way. Um, you know, I do represent Wardsboro and Jamaica, uh, which are towns in there. They had some pretty significant road damage. Uh, and then just to the north of that, uh, Londonderry and Weston, of course, have been devastated, um, again. So, so can you, we're, this, this is a central Vermont audience, uh, uh, largely. So we're focused on Montpelier and Barry and Johnson and Cabot. Yep. What, but so we're, we're thinking about downtowns and, and we're building a, we're building a to-do list here of, you know, moving the mechanicals out of the basements, filling them in with sand, uh, 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 you know, letting the river go where it's going to go, rebuilding new housing downtown, but building it up high. But you're, you represent rural communities, so you're facing difficult, sort of different questions, right? It really is. And, you know, key among them uh, is really a capacity issue. You know, we, and this is an issue for any number of policy decisions that you look at in the state and one that, you know, I'm co-chair of the Rural Caucus that the Rural Caucus has highlighted on a number of occasions. You know, we are a state that does not have county government. I'm not an advocate for it. Uh, we have, you know, our state government and then we have our municipal government. We've got um, some regional structures, our, our PCs, our regional planning commissions and our RDCs where I work. And then we've got our towns. And, you know, you've got a town of 200, uh, you know, and, and Burlington with the same sort of expectation that both will engage with opportunity and challenge and, um, and, and implementation of policy, uh, sort of at the same level. And, uh, it's not, it's really difficult. Um, you know, when we think about, uh, volunteer select boards, with, you know, no full-time administration or maybe a half-time town clerk, um, that makes execution on adaptation and really longer-term 
planning and thinking makes it really challenging, makes it really hard uh, for these communities to do. And it's something that I'm doing a lot of thinking about right now. So how bad is the damage uh, down there? Uh, it, you know, we, I don't know, in this internet age, we sort of, yeah. we, we read about it and then we move on. But boy, I'll tell you up here, it, it's, it's serious. It's bad. Uh, and it's not going to go away for months. Our, our movie theater in downtown Montpelier is not going to reopen for at least three to four months. The guy told me last night. What, how bad is it down yeah. there? So in, uh, you know, I've been to Londonderry um, as part of my uh, job. We are doing flood recovery work for businesses throughout Wyndham County, um, you know, and uh, in the places in Londonderry that flood, the villages, um, you know, it's really bad. They were under a lot of water. And that's the same thing that happened in Irene. Um, you know, there are... Uh, there's there are homes there. There are businesses there. Um, you know, I helped uh, muck out, uh, you know, Jelly's Deli, and uh, it's it's not good. Um, I drove through uh, Montpelier the other day um, on my way and and parked at the Capitol and walked did one loop and uh, it's it's stunning and it's also reminiscent of what I saw in Wilmington after Irene. Obviously, right. times at that. 25 um, when we think about the scale um, with all of the piles uh, and it takes it's longer than months it's yeah, longer than months and, uh, year. it's years it's years yeah so uh, you are known as a representative uh, who who speaks her mind uh, and I think and I think that's especially necessary right now so uh, I've been floating the idea of a special commission uh, to examine this issue and how we become more resilient, both environmentally and economically, for the future. I know commission reports gather dust and they're politically fraught, but I guess my question is, does our current political system, local and uh, and state in Montpelier, do we have the capability to look at this issue in a holistic way, recommend changes, appropriate the money, and redesign the way we live in a climate world? 100% yes. Uh, we have to start with the, you know, with the intention to do that. Right. We have to say, we have to, that is what we want to do. We have to not start with, you know, whether or not we have the funding to do it. Uh, we, we, are, we really don't have a plan to do it. And, you know, having a plan to do it and helping communities have plans to do it is the first place to start. I say this to communities here all the time when they are tackling big problems. Do not start with, you know, do we have the funds? Can we afford to do this? If you don't have a plan, you don't know. And if you have a good plan, the funding will work out. We will figure it out. Uh, and I will say that Vermont has in place uh, something that I've been looking at, um, you know, in the past few days, certainly have spoken with uh, the Speaker of the House about, you know, we put in place a climate council um, and charged them uh, with looking at resiliency and adaptation. They, they have definitely focused on emissions reduction, uh, greenhouse gas reduction, uh, but their charge and their plan do include this. And I think uh, whether it's a blue ribbon commission, whether it's additional charge to the climate council to come back to us, uh, 
uh, and help us think uh, with some urgency about how to assist our communities uh, in um, in determining where are the places in our community that we're going to defend, where are the places where we are no longer going to defend, and where are the places in our community where we are going to facilitate and help our businesses, uh, our residents move to. Uh, these are these are not um, these are. These are conversations that are already happening in our country in frontline communities uh, on, along the coast. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, those of us that live, uh, which is all of us in these little communities in Vermont along the rivers, we have to consider ourselves frontline communities and we have to start taking some of these strategies. And absolutely, we can do it. We just need to decide to. Is the is the governor there uh Along with you on that line of thinking, or is he is he going to get there? I don't know. Um, You know, I know that um, I know that uh, the governor is genuinely concerned about you know our our most vulnerable folks, um, and uh, and uh, I have heard him often, very often, talk about um, his concern in terms of affordability. Um, you know, I know that uh, he's also someone who um, is willing to really think and reconsider um, things that he may have held before, uh, I- ideas that he held before. So I-, I have to believe that he's open to thinking about what are additional um, steps that we can take here to help our communities um, with moving their residents and businesses to safer places. This is not something that's coming. It's here and it's escalating and we need to act with urgency. And with the amount of federal funds that we have in the state right now that we've appropriated for various programs, it seems to me it would be an incredible waste to not connect those to additional federal funds that are now going to come in as a result of this disaster. And we certainly do need uh, some sort of coordination um, between those two efforts. And again, if that's a blue ribbon commission, if it's new charges to the climate council, um, I do think it's appropriate, necessary, and uh, I certainly will be pursuing it this year. Uh, what What do you do at the legislature? I know uh, two committees got together yesterday and had a day long uh, hearing on just to begin to tackle this issue. Uh, but um, wh- how do you begin to approach it when you come back in January or before? So we are not in session and can't act uh, unless uh, unless the governor calls us back or unless we come back uh, for impeachment. Um, and so at this point, we can start uh, interviewing, um, we can start understanding, and we can start preparing uh, for when we come back. Uh, working with the administration, um, I can't. I, <laughs> there are really distinct phases of disaster recovery. You know, I would say we are still in the immediate term. Yeah. Uh, you know, pretty quickly approaching the short term, uh, and uh, and midterm is you know going to be about a year, and then you know long term is another year or two. Uh, it's uh, so I think that there is time. Uh, as we're continuing to make sure people's immediate needs are met um, and um, and looking at uh, additional funding and opportunities that will come in. So uh, 
I, I think there's time for us to to get ourselves in order and and uh, get some uh, work with the administration uh, coming into January. One one funding question: the governor announced the twenty million dollar uh, fund that's just a stopgap kind of bridge funding for businesses so they can get a check for $2,500 or whatever. He, he acknowledged that this is nowhere near enough. He understands that is, was that worth doing? I'm already getting texts from small business owners in central Vermont saying, you know, nowhere near enough, not even worth doing. What's your view on that? uh, It's definitely worth doing. Um, You know, what we advised our businesses in Wyndham County right out out of the gate was to compile their financials, um, you know, compile all the documentation that they um, have of the damage, what what they've done, um, all of that together, um, because these there's, there are there are not going to be if there's if there are any larger grants that come they're going to come much later and so uh, these small grants that will become available you know may get you through for a couple of couple of years uh, I will also say that these no interest uh, no payment from SBA there's a few others we have one here. Uh, for Wyndham County businesses, they may also be something that um, businesses uh, want to think about. You know, debt is not the place that people want to go and, in fact, may not be a place that people can go. But it buys you a little time uh, for perhaps um, insurance settlements and or additional um, granting that may come down the line. Okay. Uh, we have to let you go, but one, one personal question. Uh, I spent a lot of my teenage years in Jamaica, Stratton and swimming at Pikes Falls. How's my favorite swimming hole at Pikes Falls? Pikes Falls always takes it on the chin, but, uh, they've got the road reopened. It did shut again. Um, and, uh, and folks are, Folks are going back and forth. Uh, they've just opened up a multi-resource center in Jamaica. Um, for this weekend. So uh, they're they're getting themselves back together. They certainly weren't hurt like they were in Irene, but definitely a significant amount of uh, road damage and flooding, including Pikes Falls. Representative Laura Sebelia, uh I know this has been tough. It's, um, you know, I didn't get a chance to ask you how you're doing, but um, hang in there and uh, we'll be following you and your actions along the way as you lead this effort. Thanks so much. You hang in there, Kevin. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. That's Representative Laura Sibilia, the member from Dover. I think she lives in West Dover, actually. Uh, she's a she's an independent member of the legislature. Uh, she does not mince words. And when she says that this is here, that it's not coming, but it's here, uh, best believe her, She she's not um, – you know, she doesn't she chooses her words carefully, uh, but she, uh, you know, she's not she doesn't uh, she's not what's the word? The sky's falling. She's not a sky's falling kind of person. Uh, she tells it like it is. So uh, she'll be on the front lines of this flood recovery. Uh, we are going to take a break and uh, we're going to come back with the uh Executive Director of NOFA Vermont, and this is the first time I know other shows have dealt with the the farm damage. This is the first time we're really going to dig into this. 
my my co-hosts uh Pat McDonald and others have had uh Secretary Anson Tebitz, a dear friend of the show and this station on the show. Uh, we're going to talk to Grace O'Dell, the head of NOFA Vermont, about uh crop damage, uh what farmers should be doing uh how they're going to dig out of this uh how USDA is handling things and that's coming up next we're back it's Vermont viewpoint i'm kevin ellis we take your calls at 2441777 you can email me at vtviewpoint@radiovermont.com the Northeast Organic Farming Association was founded in Putney, Vermont, in 1971 to promote organic practices to build an economically viable, ecologically sound, and socially just Vermont agriculture system. Its Vermont chapter has 1,100 members, and its executive director, Grace O'Dell, joins us now to talk about what farmers are experiencing in this flooding. Grace, welcome to the show. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming on. Uh, so what happened out there? Let's, let's go back three, two and a half weeks. What, what have you seen in the field? Uh, what are your members experiencing? What, what are farmers experiencing? What did they experience? Yeah. I mean, one of the things was this impact was really all around the state. It wasn't located to one, um, you know, one county. We had impact in all 14 counties and, of course, the the impact was not consistent farm to farm. So some farms, particularly those farming in floodplain, uh, were entirely underwater, while others experienced just a, a lot of erosion on, during the floods as sort of water came and flowed through the hillsides. Um, but we also have sort of ongoing impact of this in that it wasn't a one-time flood event that happened on July 10th and ended. We are experiencing a, a really a record-breakingly wet season, which has just meant incredibly challenging, persistently challenging conditions for growing. On a statewide call, Vern Grubinger, who heads up um, a lot of work with Extension for for veg and dairy producers, was saying that it looks like 50% yields across across the whole state's agricultural sector this year is possible because of how challenging these growing conditions have been. So there's like the acute flood surrounded by a very, very challenging season already. So uh, can we take this down to the, to the local level? I'm thinking about uh, Dave Chapman down at Long Wind Farm in Thetford, who I've had on this show, or uh, George at Dog River Farm <clears throat> in Berlin. You know, Dog River Farm grows specifically for Whole Foods markets, uh, yep. sp- spinach, arugula, whatever. And uh, his fields just look like a disaster area, uh, completely flooded. Uh, his yep. his uh, staff. <clears throat> um, from Jamaica, I believe, who live in a house just next to the farm, they were flooded out. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, it's this hits farmers, not just at the crop level, but just their ability to to get out of the house, to maneuver, to get in a greenhouse, to 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 run tractors, whatever. I mean, it, it just oh, makes it yeah. impossible. Yeah, and and the the implications will come uh, will unfold really over time. You know, of course, there's the initial crop loss, 
that we're all talking about of things that were actually flooded or can't be sold because of food safety concerns, there's an enormous amount of crop loss. And we're running this emergency fund, so farmers are applying and letting, giving us a sense of what their losses were. And they're hundreds of thousands of dollars on a lot of farms across the state. Uh, but but then there's there's all these other implications, like you're saying, a very early concern that came up as you as you mentioned talking about farm farm workers. You know, there's just an incredible concern for my employees. You know, how am I going to keep my team on when we have nothing to harvest? We have an enormous amount of cleanup to do, and we'd love to replant, but we have nothing to harvest. I'm not anticipating getting paid. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of folks have let their whole farm farm crews go or some of their farm crews go already. Right. And then there's like, you know, down down the road in, in the coming months implications around, you know, for, for farmers of all types. But one implication we're already hearing about a lot is that right now this is this is hay season, right? And so some folks got a first cut. Many are not getting a second cut right now. There's likelihood to have a, a shortage of forage in the coming months. So people are anticipating that concern. People are looking around already and trying to source, you know, trying to pre-buy hay from farms they think will be likely to produce it. There is some price jacking up of hay happening in some places. So, like, there are many, many implications. And then down the road, this is question of folks who got flooded in Irene, folks, folks who may have been hit in the Halloween flood a few years ago, are also experienced flooding now. And I think there's a, a, a broad question about the resilience planning. It also connects to not only climate resilience for, for our farmers and farm workers, but holistically and systemically for everyone who eats in Vermont, you know, what is the food security plan? Are we taking resilience at the whole systems level seriously? We have a lot of limited income Vermonters who are on uh, our farm shares, which are subsidized CSAs. Those folks, you know, invested what they could and had some matching funds to, to pre-buy CSA shares for the, for the season. They're relying on that food when the food is not here anymore due to flooding. What is the plan to make those folks whole so they have um, money to spend at the grocery store and sort of, you know, just there's like ripple upon ripple upon ripple effect of this event. Um, you mentioned an emergency uh, flood relief fund. Why don't we promote that right now? Yes. Where, where do, <laughs> who do farmers call and what's the website? What's yep. the email? You tell us. Yep. Yes. Yeah, so um, farmers, I hope you've received some communication about this from some uh, some like, reliable source. But we run an emergency fund. It's available for um, all farms in the state of Vermont who uh, we do we do not require that folks be certified organic. We ask that people join membership, but that has a one dollar amount. So it's really open to everyone because we want to just build power together and be able to advocate together for small farmers and Vermont farmers' needs. We give out um, $5,000 grants. We can turn checks around in about a week. And we're really experiencing a lot of both demand for the for the funding because there's so far not been quick short-term relief, which people are really in need of, and also enormous community support to help make funds available to those who need them. So if you are seeking funding, you can just reach out to Bill at nofavt.org and he'll get you an 
application and walk you through the process. It's a really short process. We have a couple of farmer readers who just look at the applications and approve them, and we can get um, some 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 short-term relief out the door quickly. And we're so grateful to all the community who's really rallied to contribute to the fund and make it possible for us to do this because the need is really there. I wonder if you could give us a little history of NOFA Vermont because uh, as a gardener and blueberry grower myself, uh, I think I attended the first NOFA meeting, uh, summer <laughs> summer meeting wow. in Hampshire College back in, oh gosh, 1980-something. Your your <laughs> your great. your growth your growth has been astronomical uh, since then. What what is Nofa Vermont up to? What's your mission? Why do you exist? Yeah. Well, I I heard you read it and you did a great job. We're 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 interested in in making change in food and farming through a variety of tools. We work to promote organic practices to increase social, community, ecological, and economic resilience and thriving. And, you know, we have, we have a lot of programs that work to do that. So we work statewide now. We have a team of um, 32 people who do a variety of activities. We have a farmer services team who does business viability coaching uh, and practice development, help folks adopt resilient practices and organic practices to steward the land that they're on and, and really achieve those ecological goals and economic viability goals. We have a policy and advocacy team who works for change here in the state, but also federally. We're a member of a lot of national coalitions and even international coalitions, really centering uh, farming and food as this place where people and planet meet. We also have an education team. We put on conferences and socials and events a farm-to-institution and farm-to-school and food access team that works on bringing local organic Vermont products available in institutions and schools and to folks with limited means. And finally, we own um, the LLC Vermont Organic Farmers, which is the actual regulatory agency that certifies the farms who uh, seek organic certification to the USDA's National Organic Program. So that's... um, something we run because a lot of Vermont farmers are certified organic and want that seal of sort of what, what that means. I, I read this morning and I admit I don't have the details, but uh, hunger free Vermont was, was talking about an extension for uh, COVID related food programs linked to uh, this, the, 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 uh, the school, uh, you know, universal school meals program, some deadlines yeah. are going to be extended. Can you explain that if you can? Um, I can't as well as Hunger Free could. We have been just advocating, and I don't know the latest update, but advocating for these programs that make food more accessible to all kids is something that we've worked on extensively together because the basic premise, which COVID demonstrated, is hey, universal policies that support all kids in having non-stigmatized, equal access to free food, three meals a day. That's a really important food security plan that helps all Vermonters and all Vermont kids. And so we have continued to work in coalition with Hunger Free and the Vermont Food Bank and um, and Shelburne Farms and the Feed Partnership to really um, – and, and Hunger Free has really led that work around – continuing to invest 
in these programs that we know are really, really imperative and not just going back to business as usual. So I'm on their website uh, at Hunger Free Vermont. The timeline uh, that that uh, for three squares Vermont replacement benefits has been extended yep. for the July flooding uh and you have till August 9th and you can and that allows you to get um the, a card with i think 125 bucks on it uh to for quality food so that deadline is now August 9th so Thank that's that. that's a little help um grace what uh, I, I said on the last show that and we were talking to a small business owner and I just blurted out that uh, I think I think the best thing to do for people like me is absolutely no Amazon shopping from now. Well, forever. But and, and that, you know, just just shop downtown um, when it comes to farms. It seems to me what we can do is. Buy, uh, your CSA shares, uh, go to the farmer's market, uh, round up, you know, if you're paying, you know, I don't know, 25, 55 for your vegetables, round it up to 26 or 30 bucks. What else can we do, uh, to keep our farm, uh, to keep our farmers in business? It's funny, you know, I mean, I was talking with a CSA farmer who was hit by this flood and is, in a much better position than many other farmers because they got this community support up front. Um, other farmers who don't have that CSA model, you know, have, have much more of a cycle of, of taking on debt at this point in the season to be able to pay it back when they get paid for harvest later in the season. Um, and this, the CSA farmer I was talking to was saying, you know, years ago, talking to the federal delegation about t- retooling insurance programs at the federal level to better support small-scale diversified farms like we have so many of here in Vermont that federal programs really don't work well for, for the most part. Um, Farmers should still try and access whatever they can through FSA, but generally those programs are are hard fit for many of the farmers we serve. And this federal, federal rep was saying, yeah, the CSA is still by far the best insurance program we can imagine. And it's it's interesting to think about, you know, how can we be as a community, the people who invest to make sure that we're keeping farms viable and whole and safe. So yes, certainly those people who can um, shop local, buy from their local farmer, get, you know, know who your farmer is and buy from co-ops, go to the farmer's market. Those are all really important steps. And I also think what we're, what we're seeing is there's, there's like always two, two modes in which we need to be working. We need to be working at like the individual scale where we know our farmers, we shop ethically if we have um, the means to make choices about the, about the products that we buy. We need to see every dollar we spend as an investment in the future. How do we want to invest? What kind of future do we want? Do we want to see a future in which whatever we're putting our money toward grows? Let's be sure about that. And the, uh, you know, the, the other thing is there are other ways to show up besides, besides spending money. Those look like, um, getting involved in your community. You know, you can bake cookies and go visit a local farmer right now. You can help with cleanup. You can, um, show up at a community event to to better 
understand who your neighbors are. And that's going to really help keep us resilient in the future. I think we see like folks who know each other show up for each other. Folks who are well-networked can call each other when they need help, can check on each other. I heard a story just of the flood itself that really illuminated that, which was that someone was walking down the street and saw that their neighbor's cows were out in this low field where they thought it was likely to flood. And she didn't know why he would have left the cows out. She went to knock on to knock on the door and the farmer had had to leave for a family emergency and had left someone else in charge. And um, that person wasn't wasn't really following the flooding news and didn't know what was coming. And so the several neighbors on that street came out together, moved the cows quickly and um, put the cows away, helped help this person watching the farm. And that just and that field did end up flooding. And that to me was such an illustration of it really matters that we have community who know each other and check on each other. And it also really matters that we have some sort of agricultural awareness where our community members who are not farmers can say, hmm, you know, this, what's going on with this field? Can I, can I help here? And it was such a brilliant um, example of that community network. And then we also need to work on the, on the sort of systems level, which is to say, like, we can't ignore the fact that all of our agricultural policy is determined in our farm bill cycle, which happens every five years, and we happen to be in a farm bill cycle, we need to write letters, talk to our delegation, talk um, with one another about what we could do collectively. And we do have a farm bill platform that I would encourage everyone to check out if you're interested in policy. We're happy to talk with you about it. Maddie, our policy director, would love to talk with you about it and just step you through how we have come as a coalition with all the New England states to set these six priorities and how we think that they could really help build a viable uh, agricultural policy for the future, because that's also required. But there's some quote I've been just sitting with a lot this week, which is like, if we only act as individuals, it's too small. If we only wait for system change, it's way too slow. But if we move as community, we might be able to make the change that we need. And that's what I see happening right now in Vermont. Okay. Grace O'Dell, uh, NOFA Vermont, thank you. Why don't you give us uh, the, the number for the emergency farm relief program again or the email? Yeah, yes. Right right now you can reach out to Bill, B-I-L-L, at NOFA, N-O-F-A-V-T, dot org, okay. and we can help you through it today. Grace O'Dell, Executive Director, thanks. NOFA Vermont, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for covering it, Kevin. Okay. Thanks for having me. I'm back. Um, I'm Kevin Ellis. The number to call is 244-1777. If you want to email me, it's uh, vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. I'm glad we just had Grace on uh, from NOFA Vermont because uh, we haven't gotten to the farm subject. And I know Pat has has done it. I know uh, Secretary of Agriculture uh, Anson Tebbets, a uh, friend of this station and this show, have has been on the sh- has been on their other shows. So I think listeners have gotten his view. So I wanted to get Nofa on there uh, to talk about their flood relief emergency program. They're giving five thousand dollar grants to farmers. That's not small money. Uh, apply. Uh, email Bill. Go to Nofa Vermont. Just Google it. I don't have it in front of me, but go. Just go to nofavermont.com uh, and 
you know, and, and stay in touch with your local farmer. Ask them what they can, what they need. I just sent a text to my local farmer, uh, which is Ananda Gardens in Montpelier. It's run by Patrick Sullivan and his wife, Melissa Oliva. And, uh, we always buy a, we always buy a spring share from them. And let me explain how your, uh, community supported agriculture share can work. Um, farmers, farmers make their money in the summer, right? And then their, their income drops in wintertime. And so if you buy a, a CSA share from your farmer in say March, which is what we do, I think with Patrick and Melissa, um, uh, which is located at, on Horn of the Moon Road in, uh, it's either Montpelier or East Montpelier. Um, that gives them cash flow. It evens out their cash flow and helps them get through the early spring and winter when their cash flow is low. And what it does for us is that it, it gives us before our garden starts producing lettuce early on and then later on tomatoes, et cetera. Uh, you know, in July, you know, we, we always, our routine is we go to the Kate farm in Plainfield. We buy our starts. We plant the starts. I always do it, uh, way earlier than Memorial Day. And then, uh, but it takes till July to really start bearing. And so eating in, 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 in June is, you know, you know, I love the Hunger Mountain Co-op and I love fresh food, but you can't always go down to the grocery store. So we get a weekly share throughout the spring from Patrick and Melissa. Uh, and it's a great way to get fresh food in your kitchen before the harvest of your garden. And it's a great way to invest in your local farmers. And as I said, Ananda Gardens, check them out at anandagardens.com. Patrick and Melissa, you pull in in your car. They've got a full tent out there with coolers and freezers, and uh, they've got everything you could possibly need, not to mention fresh fruit from time to time and not to mention uh, fresh bread. Uh, he, They've just planted 250 blueberry bushes, uh, which makes my 40 bushes look pretty pathetic, But uh, and they should be bearing fruit right now we're in the peak blueberry season and i'm picking like crazy so find your local farmer say hello to them see what they need buy a csa share and go see them at the farmer's market uh farmer's market in montpelier will be tomorrow nine to one on the green at the vermont college of fine arts we're going to take a break we're going to come back with bob nay in washington dc we're going to talk about latest Trump charges, and we're going to talk about Mitch McConnell. It's Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. We'll be right back. You're listening to WDEV. Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos, including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group. We're more than just radio. We are back and we are at the highlight of Friday with our weekly conversation with Bob Nay from Washington, D.C. Bob, welcome. Well, thank you, Kevin. I am humbled if I am the highlight. Okay. <laughs> uh, 
We've got a lot to do and I'm going to yes, let, sir. we're, I'm going to let you choose between the following subjects. Okay. All right. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Donald Trump, Hunter Biden, mm-hmm. Mitch McConnell or Kevin McCarthy. Where do you want to start? Oh, wow. Oh, <laughs> I want to start with the other three, but for the good of the country, Kevin McCarthy. Okay. Go ahead. Start there. The I mean, bigger picture. I, I mean, uh, Congress is now on a recess and. Right. Uh, I'm already reading about a government shutdown threatened because Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, is not going to be able to keep his right wing happy uh, and his more moderate wing happy around a budget deal. Right. And and for all the listeners that have been listening for years to your show and other shows across the country and they hear the word, we just passed the budget that hasn't been happening for about 16 to 17 years. Uh, they do spending bills, continuation bills. Now, when McCarthy became speaker, there was a great demand. I think it was wonderful. You do the original 12 or 13 bills one by one. You dissect them. You fight it all out. You amend them, free-flowing amendments, and you produce a budget, a real budget, not a continuation spending bill. And it's a, it's a proper way to do the government. Well, he pledged that. And right now they've only passed one and they went on, they passed the easiest one, which became a controversy, defense authorization bill. It's a, it's a no brainer, but he's got to come back. Think about this. And within 30 days or so, try to pass about 11 more budget appropriation bills. And he's getting it from the, his margins so thin. He's getting it from the right and the center. And so this is going to be. It's going to be a balancing act. Let's see if he can achieve what they have promised to do, which is go back to the usual budget process. Yeah. And uh, and and the, the, the right wing of the of his caucus uh, doesn't want a deal. Uh, and, and yet the, over in the Senate, they have passed uh, individual spending bills. Yes, and usually the Senate is much much slower, probably intentionally, in our system. But yes, they have they've done that. So we're going to see how they balance out. But again, uh, they made such a strong commitment to go back to the normal order of the budgets. And um, but he does he has a problem with the. Not, I'm not even going to say 20 members anymore, but probably about 10 members, which you know he can't spare over four or five votes anyway. Yeah, and one more thing on McCarthy. Uh, the right wing of his caucus wants to impeach President Biden, and he it, it was probably privately thinks that's a, a, a ridiculous idea, but yeah. he's publicly been forced to kind of go along with it. Is that right? Yes, he's pandering to some people within his caucus. Look, I you know I served out there. I know some of the people that are currently serving. There are a lot of Republicans that don't want to go down this rabbit hole, not at this point in time, because you know. Much as anybody may not like the policies of President Biden, and they may speculate that he and Hunter did something wrong, they can speculate. Nothing's laid out on the table. Then other friends of mine said, well, they, they got Trump over nothing. I said, well, if you believe that, then then two wrongs don't make a right. So uh, McCarthy, though, went a little bit beyond what I thought he would do, went into the public realm of trying to kind of keep him calm by bringing the subject up. In in private, he doesn't want to even touch this, unless, unless there's something more concrete and evidentiary. Bob, does uh, does this kind of politicking penetrate any more? You know, 30 years ago it might, uh, you know, when Gingrich uh, and your crowd shut down the government, mm-hmm. uh, right. 
in the Bill Clinton era, Clinton came out a winner on that one. Does anybody care anymore? Well, in, in our era, and we did, we shut down the government. Clinton was blinking, as we say. Right. And then Bob Dole wouldn't go along with us. The rest is history. But I must say, the whole process was healthy for Clinton and us because we got five balanced budgets with Clinton and the Republicans. I mean, what you know more could you could you ask for in the right. first balanced budgets in generations? So, but back then, I mean, when I ran and others, it was our mainstay that number one, no matter what else you care about, if you don't balance the budget, we're doomed. And today, thirty-two trillion dollars later, I, I don't even see this as the main mantra. There's you know, more stuff about Biden and Hunter Biden and Donald Trump going to court than there is about balancing the nation's budget. OK, uh, I got to say, I was I was truly taken aback uh, watching the clip of Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, the longtime leader, uh, senator from Kentucky, having what uh, 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 an expert on CNN who served George Bush uh, call an out and out stroke or seizure uh, right. on national TV. Can you tell us what you know about that? Well, when I, I when I watched the video of Mitch, of course, I've known Mitch for a long time, but when I watched the uh, the video of him, uh, I'm not a doctor, but I thought instantly stroke. I was with a friend one time when this happened to them at a dinner table. Uh, this, there, there was an episode of some type. And, um, you know, you look at this, uh, I was telling a couple of consultants that called me both sides of the aisle. I said, you look at this, you look at the president falling and memory gaps, and then Donald Trump in court and the vice president, you know, who's being uh, hit up for a lot for how she says things of not importance. And you look at all this and you're like, wow, you know, it's almost like the top of the food chain is kind of unraveled a bit. And I think Mitch just threw a, you know, a scare into the system because will he, you know, continue? He's the leader, and what happens? Uh, we wish him the best personally, but like anything, everybody thinks, okay, who's going to run? Who's going to run the Republican side of the Senate? I mean, that's how the the place functions. Yeah, and I saw buried deep in some report that that they loaded the president into the back of Air Force One, uh, not climbing up the stairs because of his of an aching back. Right. Is there any truth to that? I don't know. Uh, but, you know, the president's had you know, several stumbles or falls. And uh, I think they've, they've got to be very careful because as much as Donald Trump is in horrific legal trouble now, and it, it worsened yesterday. Uh, but on top of that, uh, you know, the president's got some problems and, and you're looking at all this and you have a Trump Biden you know, rerun and you wonder, do you flip a coin? Where's it where's it going to end up at? OK, so uh, the former president, Trump, there are new charges against him. And I just got to ask you the question. Well, first of all, let's do the charges. What what exactly are these Jack Smith special counsel charges about the national security documents? Well, yeah, yes, they are. They now there's a charge coming. I'm pretty positive in saying this. I'm uh, new charges are coming with January 6th. But these are the other uh, the classified documents case. And what they have done is they've got another defendant who is a property manager. And now this could push the trial back, by the way, a little bit because they're adding something to the, you know, to the equation. But they've got uh, also some additional charges about destruction of basically destruction of evidence and the new defendant coming in. So that complicates Trump's problems. Uh, it looks like it's going towards 
a lot heavy towards obstruction of justice, even more than the papers, because I think the espionage charge was pushing it myself. But obstruction of justice, you know, I've, I've been through the legal system. They really like to try to get you. I didn't I was they didn't get me on that, but they really like to try to get you on that, because if they do, uh, that's usually a winner for the prosecutors. Bob, last question. Uh, there, as I understand it, it is completely possible that Donald Trump could win the nomination, win the presidency, be indicted, be convicted, sentenced to prison, and be president of the United States all at the same time. Yes. From what I understand, yes. And Congress is one also, federal office is one of the few offices where I, for example, with two felonies, can run again. You can't for other offices, for mayor or state rep or anything, but you can for that. And uh, it's all about, with Trump's case, if the Electoral College certifies the president, they're the president. There's not a process to say, oops, he went to prison or he's going to be sentenced to prison or he's in prison. Uh, if they certify Electoral College, that's done. He's the president. Now, I doubt if Trump's convicted that he will actually physically go into a place I would assume it would be house arrest right? just because, you know, where, where are you going to put him? And, and are you going to put him somewhere where he can't talk to anybody for 23 hours a day? You know, that's not going to happen. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, we clearly, the, this is uncharted waters and oh, yes. uh, we're, we've never seen this before, have we? We're even hearing from Congress about expunging the two impeachments. Uh, well, you know, the, I don't think anything's going to happen with, uh, you know, expunging anything uh, at this point in time. And there's a whole trial process here. But you made the right point. We are in a brand new day, legally, uh, politically, the emotions of the country. I mean, we are in a, a, a brand new day here. And this is going to set a lot of precedent and a lot of afterthought about, you know, what happens when a president you know gets in trouble. That's if You know, if he's convicted. So, yes, this is a new day. This makes this makes Watergate look like a tea party. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, Nixon left. You know, that's the old days where the head of the Republican National Committee calls you, says, we're not supporting you anymore. Oh, yeah. OK. And he leaves. Right. Uh, I don't care who tells Donald Trump they're not supporting him. He's not going to leave unless he wants to leave. That's right. OK. Bob Nay, as always, thank you for joining us. It's always thank a pleasure. Thank you so much. OK. Thanks, we're back. And we're going to talk to reporter Kevin McCallum about uh, about his cover story in seven days this week. And I have his and uh, he's not on the line yet, but he's coming. Uh, and the headline is damn scary. Intense storms push Vermont's aging structures to the brink. Um and it's a long read and worth every second of your time. It's also on your, on the website at sevendaysvt.com. Uh, the, the, the flooding, let's see. Uh, there are three major dams in the Winooski River Valley, right? There's one at Waterbury. There's one, uh, at Wrightsville Reservoir and where's, oh, the other ones in East Barry. Uh, all were built sort of uh, after the post, after the 1927 flood and they all, uh, keep the Winooski River from 
flowing into downtown Montpelier and destroying the place. In the uh, Kevin McCollum story in seven days this week, uh, details how close that we came at Wrightsville Reservoir, um, not to having a full breach that would have destroyed downtown Montpelier, but uh, how close we came to the water coming over the spillway in ways that would have doubled or maybe tripled the flood, the flooding uh, that that really damaged the city. Uh, so we're going to go to Kevin McCallum now because uh, his story is highly detailed. It's long and it's worth every minute of your time. Kevin McCallum, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay. Uh, I loved your story. Um, I was, I was a little jealous because, uh, I had A&R secretary Julie Moore on the show, uh, la- the, the, earlier this week and she said, uh, that she needs more controls on the Wrightsville Reservoir Dam because she just couldn't, they, they couldn't control anything going on there as opposed to Waterbury where they have more control over what does and does not happen over there. Can you give us the headline of your fantastic story this week? Well, the headline I think is that increasingly intense rainstorms in Vermont are stressing the network of dams in the state to the breaking point. Yeah. Um, uh, literally. And uh, as I'm sure some of your listeners are aware, you know, we did lose at least one dam and we almost lost several and, and more than two dozen are damaged. And so the, these dams were built, you know, more than a hundred years ago. In some cases, the flood control dams we're referring to are like 80 years old. And so, these were not designed for 10 inches of rain in 24 hours or something, right? They were designed uh, at a different time. And uh, the question really has now become, what do we need to do in the face of these more intense storms relative to our dam infrastructure? And the answer is, you know, we've only got a few people working in the dam safety division in the state of Vermont, and they're kind of overloaded and, um, you know, we're going to need to put a lot of more work and money into shoring up these dams in the state going forward. Uh, they lost a dam, the the Clark Sawmill Dam in Cabot. We came very close to losing my favorite uh, dam, which is at the uh, Curtis Pond in, at, at Maple Corner in, in Callis, where we swim all the time. And I got to tell you, those folks that that put tarps over that dam I still don't understand how they kept it uh held down and then they yeah. and then they rented a a pump to pump water out of the pond and you I think your story says 7 million gallons of water were pumped out of that pond is that right yeah. this was this was no small little sump pump this yeah it was like on a trailer diesel powered it's still there you know yeah, yeah. So it's a big deal. It's not a tiny little pump. So, uh, you know, relieving the pressure, uh, you know, behind the dam uh, quickly became one of the key strategies for the folks there uh, at Maple Corner to uh, save the dam. The tarps were curious to me, too. I didn't really understand that until I really talked to people. You know, you, if you put a tarp in behind the dam and over the top, then when the water goes over the dam, which it was, and that was not going to change, it's not it's not penetrating the dam and 
scoring out the inside as much, right? It's just going over into the opposite side and the dam is largely intact. So yeah, but did you see the picture on page 30 or whatever of I, I, paper where there's just gushing through uh, yeah. the spillway and then all over and through the dam? That's the kind of the scary part. When the water is 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 spilling through the middle of a dam, you know you have a big problem. Well, I'm they looking at the picture and it's this it wasn't exactly the US Army Corps of Engineers uh, doing this work. I mean, these are my neighbors uh, and it is I don't know how they held that thing down. They must have had concrete blocks or something. Pretty impressive uh, yeah. response by the locals just to save their dam and you know, which is extremely important to all those folks, right? That's a pond that, you know, is defined by uh, that water body, right? That's a neighborhood that's defined by that pond. If the dam goes, the pond goes. And all those homes around it, you know, uh, so it, it, a lot of these dams in the state of Vermont create water bodies behind them that are beloved by their communities, as well as being flood hazards. <laughs> so it's a, it's a really interesting tension between sort of preserving what we've got, uh, right, these so old dams that are all over the place, um, you know, and maybe the, what we need to do, which, uh, as, as you probably read, you know, Lots of people think that removing these some of these dams in the state is extremely important for improving flood resiliency overall. Yeah. Now that okay, and you point out in the story, and I think that's a fascinating issue we're going to have to grapple with, which is there is a there is growing sentiment, and you call it counterintuitive, that removing some of these old dams would actually I- improve flood control. Uh, can you talk to us about that? Sure. Well, I use the word counterintuitive, and I think it's the right word because, right, if you say to someone, oh, there's a bunch of dams on that river, uh, then they might think, well, oh, well, that's going to, that's going to, you know, prevent flooding somehow, right? Wrong. <laughs> uh, uh, if it's a big modern or, you know, well-operated dam, like let's say, uh, Wrightsville, right, did its job, it did hold back that flood, those floodwaters and did help prevent uh, far more extensive flooding in downtown Waterbury. But you could also make the case that some of the small dams on the Winooski, that the water just blows right over during a flood, um, are actually part of the problem. Um, that, that if you've got these concrete chunk, massive chunks of concrete, right, in the middle of the waterway, that when the floodwaters come, they're going to hit those, 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 those barriers and they're going to push out over the banks and into the neighboring town. And that's exactly what happened in Montpelier. You know, the, 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 you, could, you, could, you could make the case, and people are making the case, that there are multiple dams in the Winooski near Montpelier that exacerbated the flooding in Montpelier, made it more pushed the Winooski up out of its bank, right, over its banks, out of its channel by being there at all. And so there's going to be a push. I think you're going to see it very soon to get several tens of millions of dollars probably and a, a head of steam up for the community to remove some of those dams because then the next time a flood comes through, they won't be hitting those big concrete barriers and maybe the, maybe the Winooski will stay in its channel as it r- rushes by Montpelier and the downtown won't face what it's faced this time around. Does uh, here's a dumb question. Does does that just move the problems downstream to Waterbury and Richmond and other places? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I think uh, I think 
probably, but maybe you could argue those downstream communities are um, also going to need to be you know, better prepared for that. There's certainly more space for yeah. the river downstream to spread out than there is in Montpelier, as you're well aware. That is a very narrow channel uh, for the, where the Winooski is hemmed in by these by these uh, walls, basically concrete walls. And um, whereas if if you had that much more water down in down in the Waterbury area, the Winooski is wider there, and there's there's you know there's, you know between between those two cities, there's lots of ag fields and Middlesex. And, yep. um, so I don't, I'm not an expert in this, but yeah. you might be right. You might be pushing it downstream. Le- but um, and, and last question, ahead. you you've covered the legislature and you cover our politics. Are we up to the task politically of figuring out how we're going to redesign Montpelier and other communities for a for a climate future? Or, or do we need a blue ribbon commission appointed by the governor and the legislature to really tackle these hard issues? That's a good question. I, I um I don't really know. I, I don't think in the regular course of the, the Montpelier bill passing <laughs> uh, world that they're going to be able to easily find ways to improve the flood resiliency of the state of Vermont. After Irene, there was a lot of work to, to buy out homes, to move people out of the floodplains, and um, that will happen again after this. Whether, whether that's enough, um, remains to be seen. And I, I think probably not. I think a, a, a far larger effort is probably going to be needed after this storm if if the real goal is to protect the communities along the Winooski from flooding again, I would yeah. say. Well, as always, Kevin McCollum, uh, you can read his cover story in seven days. It's long, it's it's complex, uh, and it's worth every minute of your time. It's called Damn Scary, and there's a heck of a picture of, I think that's Wrightsville uh, on the cover. You can also get it at Waterbury. seven. Oh, that's Waterbury. Yeah, that's Waterbury. You can you can also get it at sevendaysvt.com. Kevin, as always, thanks for joining us. That's a great story. Thank you, Kevin. Appreciate it. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Counterintuitive to say the least. Remove the dams so that the water coming through Montpelier has a freer, uh, ra- has freer rain to spread out and do its thing the way it did 100, 200 years ago. Now, there's a lot of old timers that are going to say, well, wait a minute. We've been flooding you know, for the last we, we back 200 years ago, before these dams, we had floods all the time. Yes, we did, but we didn't have the capability of putting our of raising up our buildings and doing flood mitigation. So it's going to be a complicated issue. The legislature is going to have to deal with it. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about films with our film critic for Vermont Viewpoint W uh, at WDEV, and uh, I'm Kevin Ellis. We'll be right back. We are back, and we're going to have some fun for half an hour. Well, a little less than half an hour. We welcome to the show the Vermont Viewpoint film and TV critic, Keenan Ellis, all the way from California to talk about what movies we should and should not be seeing. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay. Barbie, Oppenheimer, Mission Impossible. 9, 10, yeah. 12, and I just call it Harrison Ford. What should we yeah. be going to see? 
well, the entire world is going to see uh, Barbie and Oppenheimer. It's kind of a, a cultural uh, movement going on right now. Where both Barbie, uh, which is a movie obviously made about Barbie, the doll, and Oppenheimer, a movie about J. Robert Oppenheimer made by Christopher Nolan, have come out on the same day and have kind of molded together to create a movie-going singularity. Um, both movies are are incredibly successful, making a lot of money, um, and the internet has adopted them um, under the hashtag Barbenheimer. Um, and <laughs> it's a pretty fun. I've seen both movies. Um, I went to Barbie just earlier this week, and everyone, the theater was packed, and everyone was wearing pink and different Barbie outfits, and they had a grand old time. And then I saw Oppenheimer last night. It's a much longer, more dour movie, but people stumbled from that movie just, I think, stunned by its sheer scope and grandeur. So those two movies are really uh, lighting the world on fire. Uh, I guess that's a poor... um, choice of words after i just saw oppenheimer but i'm still in the uh in the post oppenheimer days okay have you but you have seen barbie as well yeah i've seen barbie as well okay so tell us about barbie because on first blush uh it seems ridiculous but then when you hear that (laughs) the great greta gerwig is the director you know something and margot robbie's involved you know something is is happening behind the scenes yeah yeah, so I, I think that's spot on. I think um, the at first blush, Barbie is a is a two hour long toy commercial for Barbie, and that can I I just had a long conversation with a friend where he it it turned his stomach that we were watching basically right. a Super Bowl ad for a doll, um, but. They, Margot Robbie, who is not only one of the better actors we have, she's also one of the better uh, film producers, has gone out of her way to make Barbie not just a funny comedy about what, how cool how cool the doll is. It's she hired Greta Gerwig, who's um, the director of classics like Little Women and Lady Bird, to make a movie that examines not only Barbie's place in our culture, but also her relationship to both men and women and what it means to be men, women, and Barbie. It's a very heady, um, in-depth film that is also incredibly hilarious and fun to watch. Um, and is is about ten times better and more intelligent than it needs to be. So it's definitely worth a watch, especially if uh, you're having a rough time um, in life. It's it's a real fun watch to have, but also there's enough meat on the bone there that it's not just it's not just cotton candy. It's not just popcorn. Well, perhaps that explains uh, you know needing a, a break from life. Uh, it per- perhaps that explains the huge lines outside the. Stowe Theater, where we went to see Oppenheimer, uh, and 
most, a lot of the line also was trying to get into Barbie. The line was hugely long because, at least because, not least of which, because the Montpelier theaters are shut down because of the flood, people are streaming to see Barbie. But I gotta ask you, uh, why, I, I understand the Barbie phenomenon. I don't understand why people would, uh, stream and wait in line to go see a movie about the making of uh, nuclear uh, bombs and the possible end of the world. What is attractive about that? So, yeah, I think that it's, that's a little bit more complicated. Um, I, I think the easiest answer is that it's directed by Christopher Nolan, ah. who uh, is um, one of the only directors that we have that can command um, a large enough box office um, to make whatever movies you want. So Christopher Nolan makes these giant blockbuster style movies, but he makes them for adults and he makes them be, I mean, not counting his Batman trilogy. He makes them outside of the normal, uh, superhero movies and Star Wars movies, traditions of today. I think people are tired of those movies, of having to go see a Marvel movie and having to go see the nine previous Marvel movies just to know what's going on. I don't think people want um, to do homework to go to the movies. They just want to go to the movies. And I think a good precursor to this Oppenheimer is Top Gun Maverick, which came out last year and was amazingly successful and is not a simple time at the movies, but you can just go buy a ticket, sit down, have a great two hours and leave. Right. And there's no extra homework. There's no extra knowledge. There's no extra baggage. It just is a movie. And I think that's what Christopher Nolan does. I think Oppenheimer, you can just go and you can sit down and you can have an experience and then you can leave. Um, he also is uh, incredibly disciplined and com- and committed to uh, practical effects, which means no uh, special effects, no CGI. And this movie kind of amazingly doesn't have any CGI in it. It's all practical effects. He actually did everything that is on screen. So all the explosions that are in Oppenheimer. And if, you know, if you know the source material at all, there are some quite big explosions going on. He actually did it all. He actually made a bomb. He didn't make a nuclear bomb, but he made a bomb and filmed it and put it on, um, IMAX film, which, uh, there, if, if you look it up on the internet, the film role for IMAX film is gigantic. It's, it's, it takes up an entire room. And so I think there, while Oppenheimer is not a simple movie, I think the experience of it is simple in a way. And I think that really appeals to people, especially in the time of um, giant corporate IP properties um, like Star Wars and Avengers and all of this stuff. Um, and then I think in the end, I think adults just want to go see an adult movie. And I right. I don't think a lot of big movies are made for adults anymore. Can I stick with Oppenheimer for a second? Uh, sure. You make a great point about, I mean, I'll go see anything by Christopher Nolan, who made three Batman movies. Um, mm-hmm. 
He made uh, Dunkirk. He made yep. Inception, uh, and among many others. And one thing that links them all in my mind is the use of sound and the soundtrack. You are really, right. whether it was Batman or Oppenheimer, you are really rocked back in your seat by the use of <laughs> yeah. sound. Can you explain yep. how he does that? Um, yeah, yeah. He, um, I think Christopher Nolan's main idea is immersion. He wants to immerse you in the film and then he right. wants to bowl you over. Yeah. Right. And so the sound that he does is it's a combination of really uh, maximalist sound design and, um, and a really great uh, score to the film. He, his usual composer is a guy named Hans Zimmer, who, if you've seen a movie, you've seen a movie scored by Hans Zimmer. He scored Gladiator um, and uh, the Blade Runners and all of Christopher Nolan's movies. Um, and uh, and he, does, he uses it as a combination. To what He uses the film to draw you in, right? And then he hits you with these. Again, sorry for the uh, bad metaphor, but explosions of sound. So as you as you draw in on the edge of your seat, you have an explosion of sound that knocks you back. And since you're all the way forward, and then now you're all the way back, the inertia of going all the way back is exciting. It feels like you're on a roller coaster ride. Um, I'm not sure if I answered your question. You did. That. No, that's great. Okay. And, and, okay. And let's go now. So Oppenheimer and Barbie are must sees. Let's, what about, uh, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones, uh, and, um, and Mission Impossible no, uh, version 15? I'm just kidding. Should we well, go see those? I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Tom Cruise. I think, uh, he's just, I think he makes the best action movies in the world right now. Um, and I will always say, go see a Tom Cruise movie. Right. Just, just go see it. If you want a fun time at the movie theater, go see a Tom Cruise movie. See that, see it on as big a screen as possible. It'll always be fun because again, it's back to the practical effects of Christopher Nolan. He's actually doing what you're seeing on screen. And uh, Christopher Nolan has a pretty good quote where he goes, with CGI, it's hard to make an audience feel emotion. It's hard, to, it's hard to make them feel dread or joy or thrill. It's a lot easier to um, make them feel all those emotions when you're actually doing it. And um, And I think that's the other thing about this with, Oppenheimer and with Mission Impossible, they're actually doing it. And there's something in the human brain that recognizes that. So, and so there's, a, there, there's a motorcycle scene, uh, that let's not spoil it, but there's a motorcycle scene that Cruz yeah. actually does. He actually does all of it. And if you've seen the other Mission Impossible movies, there's one where he hangs on the outside of a <laughs> airplane that takes off. There's one where he climbs up the side of the Burj Khalifa, which is the tallest building in the world. There's one where he halo jumps through the atmosphere of Earth yeah. through a lightning storm. <laughs> and he's actually he's actually doing all of it. And so and I think the thing about people is 
unconsciously we can tell what's real and what's not. And so when you watch an Avengers movie, and I, I do love those movies, but when you watch an Avengers movie, there's a part of your brain that's saying, this isn't really happening. And so there's a part of your brain that's not being activated. But when you see Tom Cruise jump out of an airplane, you, that your brain goes, oh my God, that's really happening. Yeah. And that, that part of your brain is activated and that part of your brain freaks out <laughs> and it's really exciting. And so, yeah, I would say go see mission impossible. Um, whenever and however you can. It's a really good time. Okay. Kenan, we were talking about, and you know what? We, If you want to call in and get a recommendation on a TV show to watch or a movie to go see, you've got an expert on the line. I'm telling you, this isn't all he does, but it's pretty close. Uh, you can get a really good recommendation from, from a guy on the ground where it's all done in California. Uh, so call us at 244-1777. Oh, and guess what's happened? Rusty Deweese is calling in. Rusty, you're on the line with the film critic. What's up? Kevin, listening here. And, uh, I, I hear the, I hear the son, one of the favorite sons in, in LA, and I appreciate this. Part. I forget what's your name there, uh, Keenan. Ke- Keenan. Hey, I gotta Keenan, ask. Yeah. I got uh, one one statement and then one question. Uh, I don't know, Keenan. I know you know. If folks know, and it doesn't matter that they know the depths that Tom Cruise goes to with his crew to do that jump. He actually did that jump six times. There's a documentary you can see on it. Five thousand jumps he did from a dirt pile to a dirt pile to get to know how to do it with his body and everything, the ramp that he goes off, it's like the staging around the Empire State Building when they um, work on the Empire State Building. So your $11 ticket or whatever, there's got to be a lot of tickets sold to uh, (laughs) pay for what they're going through and the dedication that he has. I agree with you. Love Tom Cruise. Always uh, stand behind him. When people say Tom Cruise, I say, then I start listing his movies, and they're like, oh. Now, the other question, sir, is just what's your favorite movie of all time? And yeah. I'll let, uh, I'll let you fellers go. There you go. Thanks, Rusty. Oh, God. Favorite movie. That's a, that's a rough question. Let me just say what an honor it is to just talk to Rusty Deweese, the logger. <laughs> grew, grew up listening to him, just, uh, you know, as, as any Vermont boy did. Uh, Talk about real experience. No special effects with in Rusty's show. Yeah, that's right. He's really doing the thing. It's just you know, Rusty and Tom Cruise. They really they walk arm in arm. You know, um, favorite movie of all time, Rusty. You're really putting me on the spot. Um, I, I, I've got mine. If you need some, if you need uh, you know a little space, oh, I know yours too. Okay, I'll say yours before you. You know, we can we can do, or we can say it at the same time. It's all the president's men. Yeah. Yeah. Spot on. Yeah, and and the Great Escape. <laughs> and the Great Escape. Yeah, I both both great films. Both great films. Um. Oh uh, wow. Uh, you know, I'll go with a, a movie called uh, City of God which is uh, a film about uh, Rio de Janeiro um, that takes place over about 20 years in Rio de Janeiro. And it's a crime epic. Uh, and it's, uh, it's truly fantastic. It, it follows one kid as he tries to get out of 
one of the more uh, crime-infested and uh, dangerous cities in the world. And he falls in love and discovers photography, but all of his friends become uh, uh, criminals. And it is uh, one of the more exciting and thrilling movies I've ever seen. So I'll go with that, City of God. Okay. And in the in the three minutes we have remaining, uh, what does the Barbie and the Oppenheimer phenomenon mean for movies? We're in a post-pandemic world. We're all sitting on our couches, and we don't really want to go to the theater. Uh, is this a blip, or is this a trend that we're going to see of people going back to the theater? Well, you know, I really hope it's not a blip because I love going to the movies and the movie theaters, the movie theater experience is threatened, right? Um, especially with COVID, um, a lot of movie theaters almost went under. A lot of movie theaters did go under and especially, and now with streaming, um, it's a lot easier just to watch a movie at home. However, you do lose something when you watch a, when you just watch a movie at home you lose that communal experience so we we went to go see a comedy that jennifer lawrence comedy no hard feelings when i was up in vermont uh last month and we it was funnier because we saw it in the movie theater because there were other people in the theater and everyone was laughing and when somebody else is else laughs you're more likely to laugh um and so I don't know if it's a blip or not. I hope not. I hope Hollywood continues to uh, put out good movies that make people want to go to the movie theaters. But I, I will say going to Barbie and seeing everybody dress up in pink and making it this communal experience uh, really made me happy. Um, just because, you know, it felt like movie theaters were back. This is this this experience is back and I really encourage if when the Capitol theater, the Savoy in Montpelier, when they come back, go, go to the movies. It's a, they're, they're fantastic movie theaters. They're staples of the community and they bring the community together in really special ways that uh, I think if movie theaters go away, we'll, we will miss them when they're gone. Um, and so if there's ever a the if there's ever a movie that you're interested in, please go back to them because okay. uh, they're one of my favorite places in the world. That's Vermont Viewpoint film and TV critic Keenan Ellis, all the way from California. Hey, thank you for joining us. We look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Uh, by the way, Keenan Ellis is the author of the original podcast, The Phone Booth which is about superheroes and it's crazy and fun and really exciting. And you can find that at the fools gallery.com. Check it out. Uh, it's free. He's also the author of the endless ocean. Another, uh, another dramatic podcast. Uh, check those out. If you, uh, when you're not going to Barbie or Oppenheimer, that's our show for today. If you want to be a guest on the show or send us a suggestion for a topic, drop us a line. This show becomes a podcast at WDEVradio.com. And, of course, you can listen live to the show anytime online. I'm here Wednesdays and Fridays. You can find me at KevinKLS.com where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter called Conflict of Interest. I'm on Twitter and Instagram if you want to follow me. 
My podcast, Conflict of Interest, examines the issues we deal with a lot on this show, and I will be back Wednesday of next week. As always, we'll be focusing on the flood. We'll be focusing a little bit more on flood uh, recovery rather than clean out. Uh, there, as I said earlier in the show, there's skill saws and hammers and nails uh, and new flooring going into some of these shops in downtown Montpelier and downtown Barry. I know other communities are still really, really struggling. So we will keep promoting the, uh, your ability to give donations and to get these businesses back on their feet so that we can get our community back together. As always on Wednesday, we'll talk politics in Vermont and the nation, my garden, my basement and everything else on my mind and yours. Our show is produced by me, engineered and made possible by Pete, who is replacing Danny McGivergan for this week because Danny's off uh, off for this week. And all the folks at WDEV, we appreciate all the support we get. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we'll see you right back here next Wednesday on Vermont Viewpoint, live radio on the friendly pioneer WDEV. <laughs>